Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Authority and You with geographer and city politician Steve Volan. Our opening song is Graduation by Henry Flint off of the 2001 release Graduation and Other New Country and Blues Music, which collects material recorded between 1975 and 1979. Henry Flint is an American philosopher, musician, writer, activist, and artist connected to the 1960s New York avant-garde. Today we engage with a masterpiece, literally, Indiana University student Steve Volan's master's thesis, Gownsburg, the campus as municipal phenomenon. Volan has been a city council member in Bloomington, Indiana since 2004. In Gownsburg, the politician and the geographer seek common ground in order to describe what the university does well, but more importantly, to help us see how far afield that institution has strayed when it comes to democracy and civic engagement. We get to the city, we take a trolley. Volan's abstract for his thesis begins this way. The American Residential College campus is a doppelganger city with its own idiosyncratic laws, governance, and economics. Two key facets distinguish the campus from a typical settlement. One, it is built by a central authority with a singular purpose for a narrow demographic. And two, it is built as remotely as possible, apart or away from existing cities, and strives to remain separate from any incorporated place even when surrounded by urbanity. In our conversation today, we discuss the ways campuses were often designed by one controlling intelligence to suit a specific ideology, and purpose-built to raise young men to become beacons of that design. To achieve this, the campus would be located in nature, away from the corrupting elements of city life, elements often identified as women and alcohol. But we begin with the police and the Greek word polis, as we try to understand the distinctions between the city and the state and how the governing powers of each are not well understood, and at the very least, not clear to the demos, the people under their authority. Now, Authority and You with Steve Volan on Interchange on WFHB. I get pretty uh, radical, I guess, etymologically when I talk about police because I like to say the word police, the word policy, the word polite, they all come from the same word, yeah. polis. Sure. Okay. And what I interrogate in my work is, you know, what does a city 
mean to the to the ancient Greeks the city was the state, but is that really the case? It's more like uh, they couldn't imagine a state that was separate from the city, you know. Yeah. But we have adopted the word polis to mean city, even though it meant country to them, mm. and the word asti meant the city as a socioeconomic phenomenon as opposed to a political phenomenon, you know, even though a socioeconomic phenomenon has political ramifications. So that confusion, I think, between the polis and the asti, again, in Greek, the word for police is astinomia, not polynomia, whatever, you know, the, the law of the socioeconomic place that they called the city outside of the Acropolis. That's been sticking with me. And I can't, I haven't quite been able to articulate how we should rethink terms like the police. I mean, they are a local force that acts with the power of the state, like the city of Bloomington itself. They're enabled to do business through an act of the state. I like to say frequently that you will not find the word city, town, or municipality in the constitution, but the word state is in the name of the country. Everything flows from, in this case, the state of Indiana. And we just haven't thought anywhere near enough about it. The phenomenon of IU is a state entity that functions as a local municipality. I think the answer to the police lies partially in the work that I'm doing. I just haven't figured it out yet. The question of states obviously is, you know, one of the the reasons we have the difficulties with what we think are um, conservative or right-wing rule, even when you would say there's liberal or democratic people in offices, you know, the ways in which the functions of the Congress are sort of always beholden to a minority through Calhoun's creation of, of state powers. They do constrain your lives in, in, in more ways than you're aware, I, I suppose. You know, uh, I don't, I, people talk about the government all the time, but they mean the Fed all the time. There's no such thing as government in the singular, that there are governments in the plural. Even within our country, there are multiple levels of government and they're competing. You know, and that's not a particularly democratic thing. The intra-government reaction of governments to each other, they're competing for resources, they're competing for attention, they're competing for powers. And uh, the state is sort of like an occupying army, you know, like they they have uh, ultimate power, but they also know that they have to rule or they have to govern after they invade. It's a pain in the ass to govern, you know. Right. So uh, that's why there are local governments. Let's get into the topic we came here for. Um, All right. So uh, first, welcome back to Interchange, Steve. It was, can you believe it, five years ago, a little bit longer than five years ago. How much has happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five years ago, we were having a conversation uh, of a similar nature, obviously, because we were talking about your work um, on Gownsburg, the the coinage of Steve Olins that uh, you you came up with to, I guess, describe what is your sense that the university acts like a municipality. Gownsburg is the university as a city, and and it's very much a work of geography. It's yeah. like it's talking about why there's a where there mm, when oh, it comes good. to college. We don't just talk about universities as organizations. We talk about them as places right. that are self-contained. 
Our last conversation in 2016, I'm sure, uh, centered on IU. But with the publication of uh, DeVarian Baldwin's new book, a book that he says he'd been working on for 15 years or so, it's called In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. I wanted to come back to you, Steve, on the topic of Gownsburg, because uh, Baldwin also coins a name for the institution he's describing. He calls it Universe City as an all-encompassing separate entity, right? So, And you have a similar take on how the university has been created and how it's evolved to be something of a world apart, uh, a city apart, even as it's in the midst of its host city or town or has created the host city or town. Um, so do you want to offer any opinion on Baldwin's work at all before we get started? I'm fascinated by his work. He sort of, for me, he's going into the logical conclusions of the phenomenon whose origin I describe. In other words, I get into the why and how the university came to be this sort of giant corporate slash municipal entity in the first place. And uh, he's talking about the consequences of it. I always wanted to know why is it that the university could do all these things? You could always say everything comes down to money, but that's just not the impulse that I was tracing here. The impulse I was tracing was the argument that somehow the state needed to oversee this group of people that they called students and why they felt the need to oversee them. You know, the term that I focus on is paternalism, that until you recognize the paternalistic impulse in uh, the notion of the campus, uh, it'll be hard to understand why it is that they're doing what they do. Certainly, self-perpetuation is a thing in any organization. that There's the impulse to continue uh, doing what you set out to do. But why you set out to do it in the first place often gets lost. I was astounded to find out where some of the terms that we take for granted today came from. You know, what does the word university mean? What does the word college mean? What did it originally mean to the people who started using it? Right. Um, what is the what is the word student supposed to mean? What what should it mean? It's changed. My question: Are students adults really only got legal clarification in the U.S. with the passage of the Twenty Sixth Amendment, nineteen seventy one? Before that, you could argue that twenty one year olds were in fact still children. But those same under 21-year-olds who were arguing old enough to fight, old enough to vote, which is what got the amendment passed with rec in record time, the fastest amendment ever adopted mm. to the Constitution. Well, what's that? So, what is that yeah. amendment, Steve? What's, what's the do you have 26th Amendment gave 18-year-olds the right to vote in 1971. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Authority and You with guest Steve Volan a student of human geography at Indiana University and a city council member in Bloomington, Indiana, since 2004. He's recently completed a book titled Gownsburg, the Campus as a Municipal Phenomenon, which details the origins and history of the authoritarian design and practices of the American University, often in opposition to the democratic will of the cities and towns where it's located. Uh, it's, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary mm -hmm. of the 18-year-old right to vote. Mm. And uh, it was about, you know, war. It was about uh, uh, how old does a person have to be to be considered a citizen? And, you know, like if you can give your life to the, be asked to give your life for the state uh, without the ability to uh, vote, uh, it's as fundamental as it gets. Right. You know, by 1970, uh, parietal rules were being thrown out the window 
uh, it was ridiculous to be telling people again who were going off to war right. that they had to be in their dorms by 10 p.m. Right, you know, right, right, right. 11 p.m. Right. The majority of college students, all but the youngest freshmen, are adults who can vote. Right. Uh, they 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 are citizens fully. Now there's this ancient uh, Athenian notion of uh, isonomy, which is several different uh, notions that we take for granted today and think of separately. Democracy being one of them. Uh, one person, one vote was another of them. Isigoria, the right of equal equal access to the agora to be able to uh, speak to an issue. You're not really fully a citizen until you can run for any office. Mm-hmm. So uh, it would require being able to run for president at 18. Uh, to be fully equal. And that's unlikely to happen. But uh, the right to vote far more, far broader, more important than being able to run for an office. But at the very least, at the local level, there is no restriction. Uh, and maybe even at the state level, I don't think I, I don't know what the rule is in Indiana for running for statewide office. But I do know that at the local level, an 18 year old can have my job. I mean, I represent thousands of 18 to 21 year olds they don't know i exist right but if an ambitious one did they would be a student member of the city council right. another important aspect of your own life and work uh beyond just the uh, the book uh, obviously it uh, affects you as a uh, council member uh, because sure. as you say you you represent basically the university's student body or anybody that lives in that that particular district. Well, I want to be careful yeah, how well, I describe sure. this in sure. order to understand the phenomenon of the student as a local citizen. Yeah. First of all, there's never been a time when every IU student lived on campus. Right. I went to great pains to trace this, that there was a moment in 1840 when it was possible that a building built by IU, which was one of the two buildings built in the 1820s, the dormitory, it was on the corner of first and college. It may have housed as many as 50, 55 students. And there were as many as 100 students at IU in 1840. So there's a chance that that building, which otherwise was run entirely by the people who lived there, that was just sort of here, here's a, a building, you take care of it, you can grow some vegetables along the side if you want to grow food for your dinners, but you're on your own. That was the only dormitory at IU before 1924. Okay. Uh, So for a hundred years, students are all but required to live on their own uh, to find housing off campus uh, in uh, boarding houses, boarding with the good townspeople of Bloomington. Uh, So dormitories are relatively speaking a 20th century phenomenon. But since the majority of students don't live on campus, they live off campus. That means they live in the city of Bloomington. And the problem with their local citizenship is that they're all but required to move every year in the center of town that I represent. Often I know students are being asked to re-up their lease for next year in October. You know, they've they've just moved in and now they're being asked to sign a new lease. Yeah. To secure secure that rent rent as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So most students move every year. Uh, The thing is, uh, this qualifies them as transient. Right. They're somehow moving every year. They're not permanent residents. Well, that's true. But for on average now five years, students still have Bloomington as an address. The fact that their street address changes doesn't mean that their town address changes. And it's the town that they're voting in. You know, the city council has nine seats in Indiana cities, except for Indianapolis. 
And three of those nine seats are at large. They, the entire city elects them. So in theory, if you're a Bloomington resident, you have four representatives, the three at larges, and you're a district representative. Mm-hmm. I'm a district representative. Students are effectively at-large constituents. And it's important to think of them that way, that just because they don't have a permanent address in town, permanent in the more than one year sense, doesn't mean that the census doesn't count them here, doesn't mean that they aren't, in fact, Bloomingtonians, right. doesn't mean that they haven't, in fact, fallen in love with Bloomington. I have to represent the idea of a warm body in Briscoe Quad. Okay, there's a thousand people in Briscoe. Do they deserve to be represented? Of course they do. Of course, they've always deserved to be represented. Students are people and they're here. Okay. They, they drink the water here. They ride the bus here. They are protected by the fire department when they call 911 here and not in New Jersey or right. Fishers or uh, Floyd's Knobs or wherever from. There's many different kinds of addresses. The only one that matters is where they are six months out of 12 prior to census day. It's time for a break. This is Nothing But Flowers by The Talking Heads, off of the 1988 album Naked. More with Steve Volan on the authoritarian origins of the American University when Interchange returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Steve Volan is our guest, and our show is Authority and You, about the ways American residential colleges control and infantilize students. What can the political nature of the student be when they're not living in a democracy, but in the autocratic space we call a university campus? Students don't vote in, you know, local elections uh, for the most part. Uh, students probably don't even know that they can vote in local elections. Students think they should vote back home where their quote-unquote permanent address is. Um, and so there isn't really a politics 
in terms of how we think about politics, about voting, about being concerned about council issues or city issues or whatever. Uh, for students in general, their jobs, for the most part, are to get through their five now five-year, normal five-year term before they graduate. It's just to do their job as students and graduate and live the life they live as students. And the life of the student is what's at question here also. What does it mean to be a student? How do you perceive yourself as a student? How do other people perceive you as a student? You know, what kinds of agency do you have within your locality? These are interesting and important things that uh, I'm not sure what would happen if students were aware of them to the to the point where they cared, you know, what it would mean to care as a student about Bloomington as a city, you know, as an operating entity, um, as opposed to trying to understand what it means to be a student and have any influence over what IU does. You know, you set up an environment that's clearly designed to send the message that students are to be taken care of and that they're not to right. uh, uh, question how they're taken care of. Right. And then, you know, you wonder why the students don't care supposedly about it. Right. I mean, consider that the university is not a democracy. It's an autocracy. It's run by nine trustees and they have complete authority within the bounds of their geography. And it is absolutely here from within is, uh, is a state entity that when it adds lands to its so-called campus, takes it off the tax rolls and has no uh, obligation to participate in city processes. They effectively annex from within a right. city, which is the only exception I can think of to the idea that a city has autonomy, but not when a state university locates itself. And again, because in America, the university as much a physical place as it is an organization right. has this sort of inchoate authority to do whatever it wants. It's an arm of the state. Like it's yeah. more than the city is. It's a competing municipality type. That has more ability to do what it wants readily with less bureaucracy and red tape, et cetera. So it has more yep. power than the city has, to be sure. Yep. So your study delves into the history of the very notion of the university or school, a space of higher learning that, you know, you trace to its placeness as well. That's what you said earlier in terms of its geography. Yeah. And why did it become a place? Right. Why is it a place? I, I, don't, I think you can't really separate the idea of the corporate entity known as a university from its physical plant. Sure. In other words, it, I think it draws part of its power right. from the physical place where it's placed yeah. you know it doesn't yeah. just own a place right. you know it is an official place recognized by the state that is entirely within the rule of the board of trustees right so uh, you, you wanted to stress the history very much for your own sense as well like uh, i think you you start out the book with the idea of it being a personal project for, you know to achieve some things of your own and partly it seemed like it was actually just you know learning <laughs> discovering yeah. discovering some things for yourself and why did it need to be in the geography department you know who put me on track to get I, to, to to do this i uh, do uh, as a geography it was eleanor ostrom because i read your book i did know that yeah. 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 I mean, uh, my roommate in 2012 was a PhD student at uh, what is now the Ostrom Workshop. He encouraged me to talk to her that my ideas were uh, interesting and you know, maybe uh, she would be interested in them. Mm -hmm. And I actually got a meeting with her. She had, she was in remission from cancer and uh, uh, was taking appointments. Uh, and I got a, an appointment about a month before she passed away. Mm. 
Um, but she was very generous with her time. She, you know, she gave me a few minutes. Uh, I, she heard out some of my ideas and she said, you know, uh, this isn't really up my alley, but have you considered geography? And I hadn't, like, I didn't realize that it was a discipline. It was a thing. I, it was just, as the geographers like to say, when people confuse them with geology, we're maps, not rocks, Okay, you know, right. Thank you. but uh, it's definitely more than maps. It's all about the where it is to the where as history is to the when, you know, that there's a whole discipline, there's a whole theory. It's really big. And ironically, of all places, England geography, it's a much more a highly revered discipline in England than it is in the U.S., where we just think of it as map making. Yeah, I think so, of it more of a as more of a political discipline than people think about. I mean, a lot of well, that's the, human geography, and there's also physical geography, which is all about hydrology and oh, sure. uh, meteorology and and soil, and you know, there's 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 also sort of an intermediate discipline like of landscape geography, where I think where the I feel like it's kind of where the two come together. Mm-hmm. But I'm definitely a human geographer, and there's plenty of. Uh, of material to be mined in human geography, which yeah. then it, it's it's also I like to think not entirely an accident that geography occupies the same building at IU as uh, anthropology. Mm. They're in both in the student building. The most iconic building at IU is the home of those two departments, mm. and I I like that actually. The thing that um, that most uh, at least in the past say decade or so that most conservative politicians want to do away with is anthropology. Geography may be second, I'm not sure, besides the humanities all, all, all on their own um, as, a, as a group of disciplines where we study humankind and usually the errors we make uh, for the most part. Um, and I find most geographers that I'm aware of are very uh, left-leaning, at least in terms of how they explore power dynamics within the geographies. It does seek to understand who puts these things together, right? how these places come together and the, how they come together um, has to do with power. The geographers I've talked to have been definitely left-leaning, many Marxists. It's fascinating. Do you put yourself in a spectrum anywhere along there? It took so long just to articulate what I thought that I never really thought about where I fell on a political spectrum. Ironically, here I was a politician thinking that my academic career would supplement my political career. Because uh, that was, you know, I was trying to make a political point, mm-hmm. and I feel like it's the tables have turned that my political career is the origin for my academic career, such as it is, because I was a politician trying to identify what is the strange phenomenon that is such a large part of the jurisdiction that I have an obligation to serve. Why is it actually duplicating the functions of the political entity that I was elected to serve? that led me down this path. It's like, it was just trying to define terms. And so I don't really think of it as left or right. I think of the political compass, uh, which adds the vertical axis of authoritarianism versus libertarianism. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this is really an example of authoritarianism. I still can't uh, put my finger on exactly where Jane Jacobs said that cities are the largest naturally occurring form of political unit. They form where people gather to trade goods, services, information. I have argued that university campuses are the smallest form of government that occur artificially. They occur by fiat. Someone declares and makes them. Usually that's a state or a nation that someone declares by fiat, but they're artificially created. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Authority and You with guest Steve Volan a student of human geography at Indiana University and a city council member in Bloomington, Indiana, since 2004. 
He's recently completed a book titled Gownsburg, the Campus as a Municipal Phenomenon, which details the origins and history of the authoritarian design and practices of the American University, often in opposition to the democratic will of the cities and towns where it's located. For me, the, the most significant personage in my work is probably Le Corbusier. And Corbusier was the egotistical French architect who went beyond architecture into full-scale city design. And Corbusier was, I mean, James Scott does a great dismantling of Corbusier's logic in his book, Seeing Like a State. And uh, I remember, it uh, uh, was his book, The City of Tomorrow. Uh, he actually says in the book, this work is dedicated to authority with a right. capital A. Right. Right. You know, yeah. that's about as authoritarian as it gets. And his work and modernism as a whole only really works when you have an authoritarian uh, regime to make it happen. The fewer authorities you have to compete, uh, the easier work can get, can get done. And so uh, what was the Mussolini's line about the trains running on time? Right. You know, like if that's your only criterion for, you know, for governance, then you're going to be an authoritarian. But yeah, works uh, with the, the whole futurism thing too, right? This is also born mm -hmm. in, born in Italy, you know, which focuses on technology and speed and all the things that can happen that have to happen at a, at a higher, a higher is maybe the wrong term, but a, a different level of, um, you know, capacity to make things, to, to make built things and make them fast. But I remember when I first discovered the political compass, that seeing a bunch of uh, historical figures placed on it. And Hitler, for example, was very, like very, very, very top of authoritarian but he was neither left nor right. He was sort of just in the middle because uh, apparently he had some policies that you would consider left and some that you would consider right uh, as long as they were you know, authoritarian. And like the political compass complicates the left-right spectrum. And, but I think it's a very useful complication. I think there was a passage you really liked uh, in one of my chapters where I talk about the notion of the campus as an anti-city yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because it is built by a single entity and not like a regular city, which is built by a plural society by many different people, many different entities build the city. Even if it has a single government, it's yeah. still this interactive dance between hundreds, thousands of people and groups and entities. The whole idea of a campus is that it's a way to isolate yourself from that messy hoi polloi. Yeah, it's uh, it's chapter five uh, in Loco yeah. Herbus. And to me, it's the whole of the book in a lot of ways. Um, so let's hear it. Yeah, let's hear it. It's this is uh, section A of of chapter five, the campus antithesis of the urban. The city and the campus are both populated places. In theory, the ownership of the property in either is shared by all who own property. The public property therein owned by all its citizens. But the city is built by many entities. The campus by one. The city is owned by many entities, the campus by one. The leadership of the city is chosen directly by all who vote. The campus is owned and led by a board of trustees, regents, or visitors, the vast majority of whom are appointed by elected officials. In the special set-aside populated place called a campus that under any other circumstances would be a municipality, no ordinances are passed, no powers are separated, no checks and balances are present. The trustees simply make decisions without meaningful input from the residents, without method for meaningful appeal. The campus is a contiguous portion of land big enough to rival a municipality, but is the opposite of one. It avoids the urban whenever possible and attempts to control urbanity when it cannot avoid it. The campus, in short, is an anti-city. Perfect. And, and so, like, this was, I, that may be the passage that I was trying to write 
for as long as I thought about mm-hmm. this question, why does a college do what it does? To this day, I don't have a quarrel with the second place function of a university as a workplace. I mean, any business, any company has to have a place to work, you know, even if it's the desk of the founder and nothing else. But they there's a some place where they work or if they have employees, they, they have to work somewhere. Okay. And it's then, when they start yeah. getting into the first place and third place functions right. that I talk about Oldenburg that I question. Right. So I've always questioned. Yeah, go ahead and describe those Oldenburg places so we can talk about that. So yeah, Ray Oldenburg postulated that there were three types of places in a post-agricultural society that uh, people needed in their daily lives to to function. They needed their first place of home, their second place of work, which before the industrial age was the same place, the farm. And then the third places, the church hall, the restaurant, the bar, the public places where people gather. Places to, of, co- of communion outside of those other places. <laughs> right, right. right. Okay. And that you need all three types of places to lead a, a satisfying life. Right. Universities in America are the only entity I know to have managed to sustain, if not do so successfully, uh, single ownership of all three types of places under one ages. Right. They don't just build workplaces. They build uh, they build dorms and house thousands or tens of thousands of people, and then they build you know third places as well in an in effort to be all things to their charges who they see as not yet adults. Right. And I've come to question all of that. <laughs> right. You know, like I I think that they're actually pretty bad at building first and third places. Compromises their work as second places also. You know, I got questioned at first. Isn't it ironic that you're that you're biting the hand that feeds you. You're criticizing the place that is that you, where you're doing your academic work, and I had to say, no, I'm I'm perfectly fine with the university as a second place. Right. There should be places where people can study and study together. I question the first and third places. I question the parts that have made them effectively independent city states and why they're doing what they're doing, and is it really successful? And will they be able to continue or to sustain it uh, indefinitely? I think the answer is no. Yeah, but having to live there and work there and play there. It's also why, in a sense, I suppose, the city becomes a playground for the student body. Is there anything particularly wrong with that? Everybody needs a playground. Those are some of the tensions between the city and the university in terms of where the students play. The fundamental tension uh, between a university and the city is in the concentration of a narrow demographic group Mm -hmm. in that place. I mean, the number of 18 to 24-year-olds in Bloomington... uh, for school rivals the naturally occurring population of 18 to 24 year olds in a city 10 to 20 times its size. Mm. It's an English idea to put the university in a small place. Uh, and Americans took that ball and ran with it. And they decided that they didn't like cities at all. And university should be in the middle of nowhere. Right. You know, And the problem with putting uh, a bunch of 18 to 24 year olds or whatever ages they were in 18, whatever, or 17, whatever, is that students are an urban phenomenon, a collection of people studying, uh, but they're they're temporary. They're going to go back to the city once they're done with their education. Well, the thing is, students need to eat, they need to drink, they need to sleep, they need to party, they need to shop, uh, like any other person does. And so urban services crop up wherever a concentration of people goes. It's an inherently urban thing. We have college towns because there needs to be some kind of urban functions, but they really would all have been better served to be put in our population centers. Right. You know, IUPUI is a more logical place for a university 
than IU Bloomington. I mean, so when IU was uh, declared, land was set aside in Monroe County, which at most had 150 people uh, in Bloomington when uh, they decided they were going to put it into the Indiana Constitution. Bloomington might have been a, a village of 300 people in 1820 when IU was actually founded, maybe a few hundred more by the time students showed up. There were maybe 10 students at IU the first uh, year in 1824 or 25, but it was a very small place. Right, right. Um, and even then, it was on the edge of town. You know, <laughs> right, right. Uh, like they, 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 they was outside the would-be town limits between Third and Eighth Street, between Rogers and Indiana, what are now those streets? Right. It was down in you know between First and Second Street, what is now First and Second Street. They weren't named or numbered those at the time, but it was definitely at a remove yeah. from the town on purpose. It's kind of hilarious to imagine the vice that you were keeping students away from in a, a town of 200 or 300. You can name those perpetrators of vice, I'm sure. Uh, let's keep the, keep the kids away I, from those, those. What I wouldn't give to have proof of vice happening in 1830. It's time for another break. This is Country Song by Compost off the 1971 self-titled release. The university has a kind of utopia when interchange returns. Stay with us. When you wake up in the morning with the sun in your eyes Well, if you do, you'll find it was a beautiful surprise When you look out your window and the sun says hello It makes you feel real good, makes you ready to go Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Authority and You. That's you as in university. And our guest is master geographer Steve Olin. In this final segment, we get to the infantilizing core of the utopian dream of campus authorities and close with the disappointed tears of an 82-year-old Thomas Jefferson. It's also fascinating that really utopianism is part of this perspective as well, or, it's, or you know, it's been one of the things that has driven so many thinkers. How can we make a place that will make good people, right? And the city is not that place for all utopian thinkers. The, the city makes bad people. The country can make good people if we make the right kind of place. And this book is all about making the right kind of place to make good people. And it's a campus. It's a university. And this still is a part of our 
our our thinking, a part of how how we conceive of city versus country life. I think that is a very insightful observation. I never really put those two together, but uh, yeah, I, I guess that um, you know a campus is what you get when you let people who are at least invoking utopian ideas, if not ideals, uh, do. If you let them, uh, you know, this is what they're going to build. Utopia apparently requires a significant amount of authority, (laughs) you know, um, because you don't get it built any other way. Uh, One thing I found really interesting was that in the 12th century, when universities were being uh, created in earnest on the continent, uh, they soon found that, again, when you gather a bunch of young men uh, of ages ranging from 14 to mid-30s in one place in the name of of studying the works of Aristotle or what have you, uh, inevitably they get a little rowdy. The good townspeople, not fans. You know, <laughs> right. a, a history of early universities, a history of rioting mm-hmm. between town and gown. You know, like the, and the students were not the only ones to blame. I mean, the townspeople provided them accommodations that were vermin infested. They sold them terrible food. They watered down their, their alcohol or worse. So there were reasons why there would be fights erupting. What is the student in this place? You know, how, how is a student of this place? The student is not of this place. It, the student is from somewhere else. Here and in, in the thing you're talking about, I think you talk about Oxford and these, you know, mm-hmm. sort of epic battles between townspeople and, and Oxford students. The the people, if they're trying to stick it to the student, you know, I here live <coughs> in this crappy place and pay me X dollars. Here I'm going to give you watered down beer because I can and because you don't live here and because I don't care about you and you don't care about me. I, you know, whatever. It's interesting that already. But, and students, to be fair, students were have always been drunk and disorderly. That, that was also a fascinating part of the book, the, the multiple yeah. quotes of people saying, you know, these guys come in and they're, they're bawdy, whorish, et cetera, you know, et cetera, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and, and we yeah. need to protect our middle class girls. Uh, you know, the students were definitely of a higher class than the townspeople, maybe by the 13th century. Uh-huh. In that first century where universities are being formed, they wouldn't have survived had they not gotten charters that effectively protected them right. from either the king or the pope, you know, and that without that protection, the universities would have dissolved a long time so ago. So the, the king so, or the pope is chartering the university. Yes. Yeah. And, and right. you know, yeah. And they got treated with a different level of law. Right. They were treated by a less punitive, higher order of law that was so, church related. Yeah. So you're, you're pointing out the, again, the authoritarian nature of the institution begins yeah. very early. Well, I mean, to be fair, again, to be fair, without that authority, they would never have survived. Yeah, but the question is whether they deserve to survive. You know, the the idea of a built place versus you know study within a, within a city. Like, does there need to be a place that's specifically the university as an entity uh, versus the university as an organizing of knowledge? So it's interesting that the first quadrangles, the first you know buildings, purpose built for stu- I mean, again, twelfth, thirteenth, right. even the fourteenth century, right. you've got students having to fend for themselves at least in in England as well as in uh, on, on the continent, right? Um, and after a while, it became logical to purpose build buildings for students. But the first building purpose built for students, you know, the notion of a quadrangle was not just designed to keep townspeople out; it was designed to keep students in. Right. I, I want to say that in this, the case of town and gown, they're equally guilty. There's a healthy give and take there. You know, students were not saints, even though they were considered 
clerics. They had the they had protection of canon law. Right. They were they were technically considered uh, religious types, so mm-hmm. they could be but they weren't anything. But you know, they certainly didn't. They weren't practicing to become priests, contrary to what some people right. think. Right, right. Uh, a few of them were. They, they, it was just more the phenomena that they were. I wouldn't call them sovereigns of the pope or the king. There was no distinction between church and state at the time. So uh, whatever there was a, a certain holy, uh, that's not the right word, ecclesiastical protection that they enjoyed by the 14th century. But Steve, who's going to be a student? If this Is this like a, the problem of you know having your first son get to uh, inherit everything and your second son has to go figure out what to do and so you send him to school? Or There's always been uh, at least two basic types of students. The, the son of the wealthy or the well-to-do middle class, and then the aspiring let's call it lower middle class person who, you know, who would, I mean, the one reason that the king and the Pope liked university students is they needed civil servants. They needed functionaries for their government. These were people they could rely on, you know, and that was a way of improving your lot in life. It just wasn't as universal as we consider college to be in America today. So bureaucratic entities, they wanted people to do the work of, as you I think you used the word clerics. It's a good word. It's clerks, you know, like the the word clerk, the word cleric, I think they're related. Yeah. So, I mean, they were going to be clerks and functionaries, the government. So yeah, 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 functionaries. So, I mean, it wasn't just about sons of privilege. Right. Uh, And you saw both those types mix in. There's always been that dual stream of population. Yeah, some people have to do the work of of keeping the status quo the status quo, right? You got to have people in office, in offices at work uh, and trained to do work as the uh, particular authority needs it done. Right. And somewhere along the way, this entity that originally formed to as a guild, that's the what the original meaning of the word university, it's a guild of students masters and students. You had to create a masterpiece to be declared a master, right. be considered a master by the guild. That function still exists to this day in the pomp and circumstance, the gowns and everything, the way that we do graduate, undergraduate and graduate degrees. What I've been interested in is when it went off the rails and became a physical entity, it mm-hmm. wasn't always that way. I mean, on the continent, there was no campus. It is a term that that is American in origin, even though it's a Latin word. It's very much an American phenomenon. And why is it that way? I was surprised to discover that it doesn't go back all the way to uh, the beginning of universities. The city was the campus. To this, Basically, to this day, it still is in Europe and most of the rest of the world, except when a university is trying to imitate an American university and you know, by building a, an American-style campus. Let's go ahead and go into the campus part in terms of it being a, a unique, uh, at the time anyway, construction of Ameri- uh, oh, a, yeah, yeah. Uh, an American I- uh, idea to construct a campus because you have lots of great uh, great detail about that and, and attempts at building campuses. Jefferson comes up uh, a couple of in a couple of places. Well, just just to finish that thought, though, yeah, go ahead. A university is a guild. A college is a physical plant. Mm, right. Okay. The original idea of college was a physical plant. And for me, the eureka moment was discovering the OED, that the word college entered into the language at the same moment, the same year that new college Oxford was created. Oh, okay. Um, And uh, although it was maybe the first, uh, I mean, colleges like new college existed for as much as a century before that. But the first time it was called a college was when William of Wycombe basically funded the construction of New College Oxford. So, and the idea being that students needed a physical place for all the things that they needed to do as a student. And America erased 
the line between college and university, we've made them interchangeable. So now we assume that a university has a campus, that a college has a campus, that university and college are effectively the same. Um, but uh, they both imply that the, the idea of a campus, the idea of a college is that there is a physical plant and that's almost become more important than the guild of people whom the physical plant was supposed to serve. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Authority and You with guest Steve Volan, a student of human geography at Indiana University and a city council member in Bloomington, Indiana since 2004. He's recently completed a book titled Gownsburg, the Campus as a Municipal Phenomenon, which details the origins and history of the authoritarian design and practices of the American University, often in opposition to the democratic will of the cities and towns where it's located. Tell us a little bit about then uh, that sort of construction. I know that before the U.S. is the U.S., uh, we have we have college and ca- we have campuses, right? We have colleges in the U.S. Obviously, Harvard, Yale, these Ivy League schools. There were nine. There were nine. There mo- they weren't all Ivy League, but there were nine colonial colleges. Colonial, yeah. yeah the, the colonial William and Mary was right. the second one. Dartmouth was fascinating to me, though. Like it was an Indian college. Is that right? Uh, it was a college that meant to serve the Native American population as well. Right, yes. Right, right. And it was, it too was like way out in the woods, right? I love their, not like their, their motto, motto their slogan, yeah, something like that. Yeah, Vox right. Clementis in Deserto, a voice crying in the wilderness. <laughs> right. Like that, that doesn't get any more college than well, that. Uh, this is you know, totally, Puri- yeah, this is exactly the Puritan, uh, you know, it's uh, in, in, into the wilderness. Uh, um, pretty fascinating. What is the ideal that's, that college campuses are supposed to uh, fulfill by being out in the country, on a hill, away from the city. So, I mean, I I coined a phrase. I just like to call the, the American disdain for cities a Babylon complex. Right. America's always had a suspicion right. of the city, but it's the flip side of the agrarian myth that somehow life is better in nature. But if you need the company of other people at any point, you have to get urban. You have to go into the, the town center, the village. Jacobs makes the argument that cities didn't succeed agriculture it's the other way around, that in order to domesticate land, you had to have cities in the first place because you need to have a market to trade your goods. You weren't able, not everybody's going to be a subsistence farmer mm-hmm. in the world. The agrarian myth, something that was very strongly believed in by Jefferson, is that life is simply better uh, out in nature. But the thing is, or I mean, there's different kinds of nature. Really, what we found was the 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 in between between the urban and the wild, and that is the pastoral, the curated natural. But in very definition, if you're building a campus, you're taming right. the wild. You can't see the campus as anything other than a fundamentally urban phenomenon, no matter how green it is. But it's the phenomenon of a park rather than a town. I remember looking at the etymology of the word park, and it it comes from the word for pen or enclosure. You know, it is a protected space. Right. When you disdain the street, which is a, a, a contested space where many people come together, if for no other reason than they're they're there to trade, the agora is a place where you can test ideas as well. You know, the park uh, does not encourage debate, does not encourage trade. It's a place for keeping your sheep. Right. You know, right. you make this point. It's you know, it creates that <laughs> passive nature in some sense right the pastoral is a yeah a yeah it's a it's a pa- it's a pacifying right. idea there's also this sort of idea that you know why can't we all go back to the perfect place the golden age yeah 
the campus as a, uh, a, a natural place, or again, closer to nature at least, isn't, isn't actually in nature. And it begs the need for people. It begs the need for, for trade. It begs the need for, as you said already, things like food, water, uh, other kinds right. of things. So, so the campus can't be self-sustaining. However, uh, you do point to, I think it's Kenyan. Unless they actually farmed it. Right. You point to Kenyon as, a, as an attempt at like this sole individual, Philander Chase, I think is his name, who bought 8,000 acres uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and created Kenyon. But he was the sole proprietor. He was also the bishop of Ohio, I think. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Of that area of Ohio. Of that yeah. area. Yeah. And so, so he tried very hard to like be the king of Kenyon, I suppose, right? Uh, and all, he needed to make all decisions, but it had trustees, et cetera. And, and things began to fall apart pretty quickly. Um, in terms yeah, of- Yeah. I mean, it's the time. bane of autocrats everywhere is it actually takes a plural society to yeah. run society. You know, you need to, you can't do it all yourself. So that was a good example. Yeah. It's a great one. The infantilizing yeah, perfect. really was pioneered by the American, you know, like the, the act of making the institution into a physical place rather than uh, a group of people was the essential act of infantilization. Right. In other words, uh, we're making this a place because we believe we need to protect these charges. Can you say that it's a, we need to, to 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 form these charges a particular way? Again, that's still paternal. I'm not saying it's like protection and paternalism. You know, the idea that you infantilize is interesting and it's it seems very true. And that's, you know, your point about students still being called kids even today is an important aspect of this. Do we think that in that space, you know, Jefferson wants to protect men these are our boys, or does he want to uh, raise them, um, you know, and create men like Jefferson? I, That's a great question. Okay. <laughs> That's a great question. One I'm not sure I can answer. Um, was Jefferson himself specifically thinking of students as kids? That's a very good question. I, I want to say no. Um, I think that Jefferson simply uh, believes that that the agrarian was ideal. Virginia was entirely a state that was founded on the idea of the agrarian myth. Like there were no centers for the longest time. Uh, William and Mary was founded on a plantation. And so when Jefferson comes along a couple centuries later with his newer ideas, a century later, and it was the thing he was proudest of, which was ironic. Of all the things he could be proud of, that was what he was proudest of. And it was a spectacular failure. Like I, I was just dumbfounded to discover this moment where an apoplectic Jefferson, after a year of existence at UVA, discovers that it's all gone to hell. Like the students are are totally rowdy. Right. They're totally, uh, they're not just misbehaving, they're physically attacking each other. But I mean, he just couldn't believe that the students didn't automatically sort of uh, rise up to the ideal he had built. He just assumed that they, that, the, that what he had conceived was not perfect, but is perfectly capable of of being understood, and you know the men would rise to the occasion. Well, you make and the point anything, that that was the yeah. built. He wanted that built environment to do that as well. This is where architecture is a part right. of the story. And it was well. a, it was a spectacular failure. Like right. uh, faculty wives did not want to live with students. Right. They were all you know designed together the same place. Uh, students didn't really want to live with uh, the faculty. You know, uh, they needed to have their third places be away from their their second right. place. Right. And then Jefferson wondered why 
it didn't work. You know, why he was he was just bitterly disappointed. Well, I like that you uh, like, talked about him crying over it. I was as thunderstruck as Jefferson was when I found <laughs> that that quote. That uh, Jefferson. Uh, I mean, I I, I kind of want to read that passage. Sure. Get my copy of uh, your masterpiece. My masterpiece here. Here we go. Jefferson, enfeebled at age eighty-two, his flaming red hair now gray, stood in the freshly plastered oval room to address the student body hoping to somehow speak the words that would rescue his school from their riotous behavior. But so wounded was the former president by their betrayal of his faith in them, he had trusted all in his belief that gentlemen did not need to be forced to do the right thing. He could not speak. He choked on his own feelings. Margaret Bayard Smith, a visitor to Charlottesville, would later summarize student accounts of the dramatic moment this way. His lips moved. He essayed to speak, burst into tears, and sank back into his seat. The shock was electric. I mean, so I think the, the answer there is, yes, he did see students as adults, uh, but the thing he built for them was for children. Jefferson, what year was that where he was crying? Eight- 1825. So I know that- He died a year later. There's um, there's a quote you have from George Tickner, who becomes, I think, a publisher. Tickner and Fields was a publishing house, but he says that at one point that we build new colleges, we buy no books. 1816, we build new colleges, we buy no books. Now, we build new climbing gyms, we buy no books. It's it's fascinating, the parallels to every single stinking thing that still exists. Well, I mean, I still like to point out that the 1820 Act that created IU did not say anything about books or about curricula or about school. Right. It said, these nine men will be in charge of this plot of land that is being given to them by the state. That doesn't say anything else. Like that for 200 years... That's been wow. the jurisdiction. This is the definition of authoritarianism. Like, here's the authority. They're going to decide what's going to be done. Right. They know they were supposed to do, but they have complete freedom to interpret it as they see fit, which they have. That's our show. We'll close with another song by Henry Flint, with a nod towards slave master, plantation owner, U.S. president, and university founder designer, and rector, Thomas Jefferson. This is Solo Virginia Trance. Thanks to Steve Olin for returning to Interchange. We didn't come close to discussing all the fascinating history and analysis in his book. Seek it out when it becomes available. You won't be disappointed. Next up, we'll look at the late Noel Ignatiev's memoir, Acceptable Men, Life in the Largest Steel Mill in the World. That was, at one time, U.S. Steel in Gary, Indiana. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.